Hey, it's Jeff Semple filling in for Alan Carter this week. Here's what's on the podcast today. The Conservative Party is choosing their new leader. Are you doom-scrolling? And what exactly is Triller? All that coming up. Let's get to it. It is a big week in the world of politics. Political junkies, a lot to be excited about uh, this week, a lot to chew on. South of the border, the Democratic Party holding its convention to make it official and selecting its presidential candidate, Joe Biden. Um, So no surprises expected south of the border. But north of the border, up here in Canada, the Conservative Party is doing a similar thing, trying to decide who will be its next leader and lead that party into its next election. Uh, But before we get to that... uh, there's a headline on our global news website this morning that reads Trudeau Morno clashing over green initiatives and coronavirus spending. Uh, the article describes a deepening rift between the prime minister, Justin Trudeau and his finance minister about coronavirus spending um, concerns that the, you know, the finance minister, Bill Morno and his team have been pushing back against cabinet ministers over how much funding is needed. Um, also, you know, upset about how much investment is expected in environmental projects, for example, and we're hearing that Trudeau and Bill Morneau will be meeting today in a bid to sort out their differences. Now, do you hear that sound? You listen carefully. That is the sound of a bus heading towards Parliament Hill, and the Prime Minister's office is getting ready to throw Bill Morneau under it. Uh, If you can't read between those lines, you should probably get your eyes checked. Whether you believe that Trudeau and Morneau are actually butting heads over spending and and climate change investment or not. Uh, I think one can't help but wonder if this might also have something to do with the We Charity controversy. And you'll remember that Bill Morneau, quote unquote, forgot to repay about $41,000 in travel expenses paid by the We Charity for trips that his family took to Africa and Ecuador. Accidentally forgetting to repay $41,000 probably wins the award for the least relatable mistake of the year so far. That's the equivalent of forgetting about an entire salary for a lot of Canadians. The average Canadian salary is about $52,000. Also, of course, one of Morneau's daughters was a current employee of We Charity, but despite all of that, he did not recuse himself from the decision to hand We Charity that lucrative contract. And of course, Bill Morneau, Justin Trudeau, both facing ethics inquiries related to that charity, that decision. So Bill Morneau, his days may be numbered. Uh, we've also heard that Justin Trudeau has recently hired former Bank of Governor, uh, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, excuse me, as an informal advisor. So, you know, the writing appears to be on the wall there. And ex- speaking of heading for the exit, Andrew Scheer can now count his days on one hand as leader of the opposition, the Conservative Party. That party in its leadership race is now into its final week uh, and expected to announce the winner on August 23rd, this Sunday. For more on what to expect, we're joined on the line now by Jamie Ellerton, who's a conservative strategist, a principal at the public relations firm Conaptus, and was formerly the manager of media relations for Mr. Shear's election campaign. Jamie Ellerton, thanks so much for joining us here on Global News Radio. Thanks for having me. So I don't know if you're a betting man, but uh, we got less than a week to go before the results will be announced. What are you predicting? Uh, where are you placing your money? So I am not a betting man. It's uh, served me well in this far in life, and I'm not about to start. But I think if you're looking at the results uh, and what to watch for in this Conservative Party leadership race, it is pretty much accepted as fact that Peter McKay is definitely the leader, but the very unlikely to have enough support to win it outright on the first ballot. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, of course, is the other front runner. Uh, and 
running in second place behind Peter McKay, a little lesser known to Canadians more broadly before this all started. And then behind them would be Leslie Lewis, a total new entrant onto the political scene, who, if you were to grade the campaigns themselves on who's like exceeded expectations and put a campaign together and like really made the most of this campaign period, it's definitely Leslie Lewis. She is the standout environmental lawyer, engineer, uh, black woman here from Toronto, and has really uh, kind of put some real energy into a leadership race that was lacking it for so long. And then Derek Sloan is a kind of distant fourth as the also ran staunch social conservative trying to imitate Donald Trump candidates. So the, the real thing to watch when results come in, uh, when you're seeing them riding by riding, uh, to win, you need to win essentially 50% of the points spread across the country. Uh, so it's not truly why 50% of the vote. Each riding is weighted down to 100 points. And if Peter McKay doesn't have enough to win on the first ballot, then the last place candidate, very likely going to be Derek Sloan, will drop off. And anyone who voted for Derek Sloan, they will their second choice will be distributed between the three candidates. The thing that's going to actually make this kind of really interesting to see the strength of the campaigns and the organizing, especially during the pandemic, is what is the strength of the Lewis and Sloan vote put together? And is that going to be enough to keep Aaron O'Toole in second? Or will it bump Aaron O'Toole down to third? And that is kind of the real question where people just don't know what this is going to be. Although the party has a historic high number of members, just shy of 300,000, everyone's been mailing, uh, voting by mail. They have until, uh, I think it's five or six o'clock on August 21st to get your ballot into party headquarters for it to be counted. They were mailed out at the beginning of July. And so nobody knows how voter turnout's going to be on these sorts of things. And so there's obviously a lot of different things, especially since you're not voting in person, as most people would think of. So there's a really a lot to unpack there. And uh, the last week of this race really is probably the most exciting and headlines it's going to generate as it has the past six months. Yeah, and of course, a lot riding on this. And it's it's interesting, as you sort of talked about the calculus there, it sort of reminds me of the liberal leadership race back in 2006, where you saw, you know, Michael Ignatieff, Bob Ray, and then Stefan Dion kind of come up the middle as that third place candidate, uh, which I guess in this case would be Leslin Lewis. Um, you know, as you noted, uh, a strong campaign, but certainly not as well known, at least to me. Um, what do we know about her? Uh, so we know she ran in a kind of a long shot chance back in a Scarborough riding in the 2015 election. Uh, she's been kind of increasingly active, but not necessarily terribly active in conservative circles for the past five years plus. Uh, she's a lawyer by trade and practices environmental law and uh, views of her Christian faith as a strong source of inspiration to her, immigrated with her parents from Jamaica as a kid, uh, and kind of was a story not too dissimilar to what you'd hear from thousands across uh, the GTA. But I think one of the things that kind of really stands out is that conservatives are kind of have a little bit of a bone to pick with media. As you look at all the glowing headlines Kamala Harris got, uh, when she was announced as Biden's VP pick last week and the profiles and the features and Canadian media getting that kind of excitement for uh, a woman of color south of the border, they're kind of scratching their head and being like, why aren't we talking about Leslie Lewis? Uh, so she's still a relatively unknown. Uh, she kind of held her own in debates, but by no means wowed anyone, uh, which often in debates is like, so long as you don't make mistakes, you can continue on a pace. Uh, they're more for theater than uh, moving votes typically. 
Uh, but it's, I think it's safe to say that Leslie Lewis will be a figure in conservative politics, uh, very likely to run in the next election. And I think it's a breath of fresh air and bringing a different perspective to the table uh, and uh, kind of represents uh, the trueness of Canada's diversity uh, uh, being at home in the conservative party. Yeah, and it's so. And I guess she's so she's considered a social conservative, right? And I it's and that's an interest, raises an interesting question to me because you know we'd seen I think it was a poll earlier this year where Canadians, including voters who identified as conservative, said that they were looking for a party leader who was fiscally conservative rather than socially conservative. But in terms of you know reconciling the the voter base here, and Andrew Shear has been talking a lot about this, right? Uniting the party. Um, you know, how do you see that that playing out uh, in in the next few days as we uh, as we move towards choosing a leader? So in the next few days, it's probably going to be the strongest to that benefit of kind of having the socially conservative views uh, will be for Dr. Lewis. There is no doubt that there are some concerns uh, there. If you look at what she's had to say on things like banning conversion therapy, uh, her kind of glib talking point in response is she doesn't think it should be criminal for someone to talk to their priest or pastor. And I don't think anyone's suggesting as such, whereas forcing youth to undergo conversion therapy to try and pray the gay away or however they go about it uh, is, of course, very different. So there are things like that that I think in time she would be held accountable for and have a kind of more rigorous uh, examining of her views and having to defend them. Uh, but we live in a pluralistic society. There are people who are going to have uh, different views. Uh, I'm an openly gay man, and I've been involved in the party for over 15 years now, and I've seen the party come a long way. And I think the fact that you even saw two frontrunners in the, in the race, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, talk about how they were going to march in pride uh, as something that's actually moving the party in the right direction, and that has not happened before. So there's a, there's a lot of politics to be had there. Uh, and a lot of passion uh, and, and real energy in, in those debates. But I think if you, as you look in terms of how this impacts the, the leadership vote, it's, it's indisputable that uh, Leslie Lewis has positioned herself as a social conservative, but she's positioned herself as a more thoughtful uh, social conservative, whereas Derek Sloan has been bombastic of the, like, the very staunch uh, one or two issue voter groups that fall into a uh, portion of social conservative voters, they're saying vote Derek, vote Leslin, and then vote nobody else. Uh, whereas there's a lot more conservative members who think things like in a Burkean style of social conservative, that having strong families and strong communities is one of the best ways you can do to invest in the country and the, and the future of it. Um, and we'd like to see some more thoughtful approaches to that. When you think of tough on crime, it's not just to lock them up and throw away the key. Yes, there needs to be punishment for justice offenses, but also look at how you can have strong communities to prevent people from getting into a life of crime to begin with. So we can get philosophical uh, on that on another day. But in terms of the results for this weekend's leadership election results expected on uh, the, uh, the 23rd, it's going to be does Lewis votes plus Sloan votes outweigh the first ballot votes of what Erin O'Toole got? And if so, she could be a surprise uh, second place finish or even perhaps put her over the top. But uh, we won't know until the ballots are counted, and this is where, for all their efforts in kind of generating media headlines, building less, signing up members, if those members don't come out and vote, uh, then they're not being part of a tally, and that's kind of the real question mark, especially given the conditions surrounding the pandemic over top of all this. 
Jamie Ellerton, a conservative strategist. I was going to ask you, we're out of time, Jamie. I was going to ask you about Peter McKay uh, continually shooting himself in the foot over and over and over again during the course of that campaign and whether that has done uh, fatal damage. But uh, we'll have to leave it there for now. Perhaps we can reconnect with you closer to uh, the end of the week. Thanks so much again, Jamie Ellerton, conservative strategist uh, with the public relations firm Canaptus and the former media manager uh, for uh, Andrew Shear's campaign talking about his final days here as Conservative Party interim leader before that party chooses its new leader this weekend. Feel compelled to come clean and admit that I have a problem, uh, that I have an addiction. I am addicted to doom scrolling. Doom scrolling, also known as doom surfing, as I mentioned earlier in the hour, a new addition to the Merriam-Webster dictionary defined as the tendency to continue to surf or scroll through bad news, even though that news is saddening, disheartening, or depressing. No, I discovered the extent of my addiction uh, last week, in fact. Uh, went with my wife and baby girl to visit my mother-in-law, who lives about, about a four-hour drive uh, northeast of Toronto, kind of in the Ottawa area. Right off the grid, though, like in the country, no internet, not even any cell phone reception. Uh, what that has meant, though, for my mother-in-law through the course of the pandemic and the lockdown is that, uh, as I noted, we have a seven-month-old baby girl at home, and she has not been able to see her new granddaughter um not no zoom no skype calls we couldn't even text message any photos to her at one point we actually put some photos onto a usb key and mailed them in canada post so that she could get a glimpse of her granddaughter who she hasn't been able to see so we went out to see my mother-in-law last week great visit uh, for a few days but while i was out at her house as i say no cell reception no internet i kept pulling out my phone over and over again, just by habit, to basically just stare mindlessly at my social media feed, my Twitter feed, as I scroll down and down and down and down endlessly, and then look up at the clock, and like 10 minutes have gone by, and I think, oh my gosh, what a waste of time, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm doing it again, and I don't know if, uh, I, I don't know if you have this on your iPhone, where it gives you a, a daily, or a weekly usage report, but I got mine yesterday, and it said I was, it was, my usage for last week was down like 20%, because I just wasn't checking my phone, and honestly felt better for it, um, but you know, doom scrolling, as ridiculous as the term might sound, is a real problem. And to talk more about it, we are joined now by Adrian Matei, who's a Vancouver-based writer and editor who just penned an article in the Globe and Mail, uh, headlined, The Dangers of Doom Scrolling. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us here on Global News Radio. Jeff, thanks for having me. So, cards on the table first. I have to ask, are you a doom scroller yourself? <laughs> you know... I think like a lot of people, I do have a bit of a problem with picking up my phone and just not even really knowing what I'm intending to do, but getting stuck, especially in social media. Yeah. And, uh, you know, especially as you say, there are so many different social media apps that I don't know. I can go from Twitter, then I say, oh, that's enough. I close it. Then I open up Facebook and then I go back to Twitter, uh, look up at the clock and like, you know, there goes half my morning. Um, but, oh, for sure. you know, jokes aside, though, I mean, like, why did you decide to to write about about this issue? So doom scrolling was a word I was seeing being used a little more, it's kind of entering the lexicon, and I just thought it was interesting to put a finer point on this thing that everyone seems to be able to relate to, especially in 2020, when there's just been so much kind of frightening news going on. Um, and I thought it would just be interesting to look into a little bit further and learn some techniques on how to combat it. 
Yeah, so talk to me about that. I mean, because I would love to know that, as I noted there in the intro to this segment. You know, I I managed to to break my addiction by visiting my mother-in-law who lives off the grid with no internet and no cell phone reception. But, you know, can't be doing that every day, obviously. So, you know, what are the best practical ways to break this habit? Okay, well... I spoke to a psychologist about this. His name's Dr. Ali Matu, and he essentially explained to me that we doom scroll because uncertainty breeds anxiety, and we're looking for answers or reassurance. And when we're in something like a pandemic where those things don't really exist, we just want to keep looking, and it it causes this cycle. Um, So the solution isn't really to stop reading the news. It's important to stay informed, of course. But what we need to do is primarily just be intentional not to grab our phones and open Twitter in that kind of zombie-ish state and then look up two hours later, but to ask ourselves, you know, am I looking for the news right now? Do I want to go on Twitter to look for the news or do I want to go to a trusted source? How long am I going to be online? Do I need to set a timer for myself? And then what's also important is to divest ourselves of this belief that we have a moral imperative to read everything. And that's just because we only have so much energy. And if we doom scroll, we really risk burning out and feeling hopeless and paralyzed. And that's really the last thing we want, because, you know, it's important to remember, even if things feel hopeless, there is always something we can do to help other people. We can donate, we can organize, we can strive to learn more, but we have to be able to sustain positive action. And that's really hard to do when we're totally overwhelmed by the news online and by social media. Adrian Matei, a Vancouver-based writer and editor and author of a Globe and Mail column titled The Dangers of Doom Scrolling. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Take care. You know, unless you've been living under a rock for the past four years or so, uh, it is no secret. You're probably well aware that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, loves to tweet. He's a big tweeter. Uh, He loves Twitter. In fact, uh, an analysis that was conducted by the Washington Post a couple of months ago found that since taking office, Donald Trump has spent almost 10 full days, nine days, 17 hours and 36 minutes tweeting. Wow. And, you know, he's a busy guy, but he makes time to tweet, of course, as we know. And the reason for that, according to the president himself, as he claims, is that Twitter allows for him to use his direct voice to the people. He doesn't have to go through the fake news, as he uh, loves to call them. Uh, So he's a big Twitter user, of course. But, uh, as you may have heard over the weekend, the U.S. president is now taking a shine to another app, Triller. Now, I've never heard of Triller, but uh, apparently a lot of people have. It is uh, being downloaded by the thousands over the weekend, thanks in large part to the U.S. president. And President Trump, his campaign, has just joined the video sharing app, creating a new verified account. Uh, It's believed to have been created on Saturday. And he's just posted a 15-second video the president has. Have a listen. I'm a professional in technology. Nobody can do it like me. Nobody. Nobody can do it like me. Honestly. So there you have it. I don't know if you could hear it there, but Donald Trump saying he's a professional at technology and that nobody can do it like me. Nobody. So true to form, the U.S. president there on his in his first Triller video. He's also since posted a couple more uh, slamming presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden. Why is this significant, that uh, Donald Trump is using an app called Triller? Well, it's significant because Triller is considered to be a leading American competitor 
against TikTok, which is a much better known app to most of us, a video sharing app that has found itself in the crosshairs politically over the past couple of months. Donald Trump threatening to ban the app in the United States. Uh, here in Canada, our study conducted out of Ryerson University recently found that uh, TikTok is one of the most popular apps in this country, used by about half of Canadians under the age of 25. So, you know, a lot at stake here. And TikTok, uh, for those who haven't been following these developments, is controversial, first and foremost, because it is owned by a Chinese-based company, which technically means that its user data would be subject to Chinese law, which would the- could theoretically require that company and others to hand over any data to the Chinese government upon request. Now, TikTok has told Global News that it has not ever done that, would never comply, but uh, that has not placated the concerns of a lot of people, including President Trump, who just on Friday issued an executive order giving the company that owns TikTok, ByteDance, 90 days to either sell or spin off its TikTok business in the United States. The Trump administration claims that the app poses a threat to national security, though it's not provided any evidence to support that. Uh, So what to make of this? Uh, You know, a lot of concerns from parents in Canada whose children use TikTok, not sure whether they should be letting their kids download that app, and wondering now whether Triller might be a viable alternative. To discuss, we are joined on the line by David Skillicorn, who's a professor in the School of Computing at Queen's University. Professor Skillicorn, thanks so much for joining us here on Global News Radio. Afternoon. So, first of all, talk to me about Triller. I don't know how familiar you are with this app. Yeah. I hadn't heard of it, to be honest, since yeah. uh, Donald Trump uh, started talking about it recently. What do we know about it? There are going to be a lot of very unhappy people on Triller because it's been sort of flying under the radar as an important app, and it's a place where a lot of music-based people have gone, and they've kind of built their own community that has not been full of the noise that many of the other social media platforms have and now all of a sudden they've had donald trump parachuted into their midst and uh, and thousands of extra signups and a whole lot of noise Uh, and so it's Hmm. sort of been taken over for them by donald trump which probably means that that they will all leave and go somewhere else and triller will become another kind of echo chamber for trump Right. Well, there you go. Uh, whether he needed another echo chamber or not, I'm not sure. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's just a case of he's worried about the election and he's going to use every possible channel he can find. But this one is monumentally inappropriate. Right. And, of course, you know, as as I've been saying, you know, Triller sort of being touted as a replacement for TikTok. Uh, but, you know, should we be replacing TikTok? I mean, are, are, is that all politics there, or are, there, are, there, are concerns justified? Yeah, there, there are a number of problems with TikTok. The national security one that you talked about is the fact that, despite what they say, when push comes to shove, if the Chinese government said they had to turn stuff over, then they would have absolutely no choice. Whether it's very interesting to get the data on thousands of weenie boppers across the world is less obvious, right? But still, it could be a concern. But the bigger issues for me as a computer scientist is that it's not built very well. And every month since it was first available, they've had to do a major security upgrade to fix really very, very obvious security problems. So that doesn't give me confidence that the, that anything that it does is going to actually work the way it's supposed to. And in some ways, the national security problem becomes not that the Chinese government, but the Koreans and the Russians and all of those who could presumably break into 
uh, the app very easily because it's just so badly engineered. So in your assessment, is Triller a better alternative? Well, see, Triller's had this very small user population, so I'm not aware of anyone who's had a real good look at it. Um, because it hasn't been used for anything but this little group of musical-oriented people on the whole. So I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, and well, and it's interesting because, uh, well, I, we might be hearing about Triller for the first time. It was founded a couple of years before TikTok uh, back in 2015. Uh, we certainly heard, you know, the owners of Triller boasting about the fact that, you know, it is a better version, an adult version of TikTok in, in their words. Um, but, yeah, you know... it certainly has an older demographic than TikTok. Like, it's people who are in their their 20s rather than people who are in their teen years. And, you know, but this is something, as we noted, whether Donald Trump decides to start... I don't know what I know they call on Twitter. It's called a tweet. So on Triller, I don't know. Do they call it a trill? But whatever the verb is, I suppose we'll find out if we haven't already. But, you know, a lot of concern, you know, about Facebook and Twitter policing speech, policing, you know, misinformation, hate speech. We've seen Twitter and Facebook taking action just recently against, you know, what they saw as misinformation coming from the U.S. president. Do we have any sense in terms of whether Triller is prepared to start making sure that hate speech and misinformation doesn't proliferate on its platform? Well, all of those platforms find themselves in a really difficult cleft stick because, of course, this sort of inflammatory content brings them eyeballs, and those eyeballs watch the ads and so on that the platform provides. And and they want to take this position that they are just the, the conduits, the pipes, by which people get content, and so it's not their problem if anyone's hateful or abusive. But of course, that hasn't really been working for them. And so they find themselves in this funny position where at the same time they're saying, you know, we're just the channel, but we're going to do some policing, but if we get it wrong, well, we try it. In 30 seconds or less, uh, David, if you can, if you're a parent out there, um, you know, should you be deleting TikTok and downloading Triller on your kid's phone? Well, I think there's good reasons to delete TikTok. I don't know that there's any better reasons to download Triller as things stand at the moment. Professor David Skiller at Queen's University in the School of Computing. Professor Skillercorn, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Good talking to you. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show every weekday starting at noon.